to you in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to see you all here this morning, and if you are joining us here last year, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, just a few uh, announcements, a few reminders as you are settling in and making your way to your seats. Number one, uh, actually, the first two having, are having to do with deadlines. Today is a deadline for two things. Number one, we are still looking for additional help with the children's Sunday school. Uh, so if you are able and willing to help us out with that, please see Rhonda Stevens or myself uh, today. Uh, and the other deadline is for the men. Uh, we are having uh, acts and wings on September 29th, which is a Friday, probably around 6.30 p.m. If you are interested in both or either of those things, today is the deadline to let me know, and I will have uh, information for you as far as cost uh, later this week. So uh, either message, text, Slack, email, send a letter if you want to. I don't, doesn't matter. As long as you let the appropriate people know uh, by the end of the day that you are interested in those things. Uh, and then thirdly, we are having a congregational meeting uh, following the service next Sunday. And in the back wall, uh, there is a motion uh, that will be brought to the floor next week for approval. And then there is also uh, the, some financial documents uh, for your review as well. Uh, that information will also be sent out electronically uh, this week. If you have any questions at all about anything that you see in those documents, it is important that you let uh, that you uh, uh, contact Jay Smith or myself. Uh, it's not that we won't accept any questions on the floor on the day of the meeting, uh, but sometimes, depending on the question, we can get an answer to you, you know, right then and there. So just to have the question beforehand, and if we need to, you know, sort of deliberate, consider, uh, then it will give us time to have an answer for you. So uh, please let us know beforehand if you have any questions, uh, email, call, uh, whatever is easier for you. So with all that being said, let us go before the Lord and let us worship Him. You may come here this morning uh, perhaps with some concerns, perhaps with some uh, distractions, uh, which is natural uh, for us. It is, uh, we cannot help uh, take our concerns and our worries and our distresses with us wherever we go, even when we intend uh, to be wholeheartedly devoted to whatever task that we are looking to, uh, to accomplish. Uh, but be encouraged, because the Lord who sustains the universe by the word of his power, the one who knows and understands and sees and hears all things, has his focus and his attention on us this morning as we come and gather to worship his holy name. And we are not a distraction uh, from his glorious work, but we are a part of his glorious work. And so may we come before the Lord and give our, let us give our whole hearts, our whole minds to the worship and honor of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand. Uh, let's worship this morning. But before we do, let me <clears throat> read God's word. It's in Ephesians. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillment of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen. Let's worship.
sing together. And I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus, Jesus paid it
Lord, I need you. 
Father, you are worthy of our praise. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to to come each and every Sunday morning, Lord, and, and gather with the saints, sing songs of praise, and worship you through those words, God, that we sing as we understand the words that we sing, the words that we're saying, Lord, truths and promises, blessings, but also, Lord, we worship you in your word. What a privilege it is, Lord, to be encouraged, to be edified, Lord, coming and gathering as a church, as a body, Lord, for your glory. Thank you, Father, for the work that you've done in each and every one of our lives through our Lord and Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, God, for the salvation you've placed in us. Lord, lead us, I ask you, Father. May you lead us this morning in all things. Lead your church, Father. Lead your people. Speak to us today. I ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Church, you may be seated, and at this time we'll be uh, dismissing our children to their classrooms. I'm going to read to us from Ephesians 4, 21 to 24, and then we will spend some time in prayer. The word says, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Pray, God of heaven, there is no other God like you, who is righteous in all his ways. Lord, you are right in all that you do, in all that you think, in all that you say. There is no other God like you. There is none besides you who is robed in holiness. You are set apart. You are distinct from all things. You are pure. And we have no other Savior like the Savior we have in Jesus Christ who fulfilled all righteousness on behalf of his people, who though was robed in human likeness, yet was still distinct from the rest of the world. He was holy and set apart. And that through his death, burial, and resurrection, Now his beloved children are clothed in that same righteousness and that same holiness. Lord, we have about us a righteousness and holiness that we could never have worked to earn. 
that we never could have achieved through our own efforts, that we could have never received through the hands of someone else, but we have a holiness and a righteousness that comes only through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are thankful for this righteousness and this holiness At the same time, Father, we come before you in the confession of our sins. We confess to you that oftentimes, Lord, that we do not walk in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we do not always walk in the holiness of Christ Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, of our trespasses. Forgive us our sins. Would you be merciful and gracious to your precious children? We thank you, Lord, for not giving us what our sins deserve. We're thankful, Lord, for the abounding grace that you continue to show us each and every day. With every day that the sun rises, Lord, is another reminder that you have renewed your grace and your mercies to us. And we're thankful for the opportunity that we have this morning to worship you and to glorify you for your great grace. For this serves as a reminder of your abounding grace towards sinners. Lord, help us. We pray, Father, by the power of your Spirit, that there would be a closer harmony between our new life in Christ and the way that we live out that life in Christ. Father, we pray, we pray for the saints, we pray for those who are in a season of trial, we pray for those who are in a season of struggle, we pray that you would encourage your precious people. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen those who are weak, we pray, Father, that you remind those who are in a season of discouragement of your precious promises that are written in your word. Father, we pray this morning for the Martinos. We pray that you might give them wisdom, abounding wisdom, as they raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father, in those days, in those moments, or in those seasons when... Parenting is exhausting and tiresome. Lord, would you provide an extra measure of your sustaining grace? Father, would you encourage them in their faith? Would you bless them in their efforts? Would you bless their marriage also? Father, we pray for Julian and Davy, and we pray that they might come to know Christ Jesus as their precious and their dear Savior. Father, we pray also for my family as well and praying that even my precious girls would come to know Christ Jesus as their Savior. Help us, Lord, in all that you've called us to do in this season. Provide strength, provide grace. Lord, provide better sleep. 
provide, Lord, what your servant needs for faithful pastoral ministry. Father, we pray for the Krugnalis as they continue to minister in Africa, or actually as they are in a time of rest here in the States. Lord, would you encourage them, and may this be a fruitful season of rest. Lord, give them energy. Provide, Father, all that they need. Help them, Lord, to continue to receive, receive, and receive during this season so that they may be ready when you call them to go back out to be poured out more and more to minister to others. Father, we continue to pray for a great work of salvation in New England. We pray, Father, for a greater holiness and greater purity in the life of your church. That there would be removal of sin. Lord, for man will not come into salvation if the church is not distinct from the world. So would you help and purify and sanctify your bride, make her look more and more distinct from the world, and embolden your church, embolden your precious saints to not only live out their faith, but to also proclaim that faith to those who are lost. And we pray similarly, Lord, for our country. We pray for a great revival. We pray for a great salvation of the lost, we pray, Father, that your gospel would penetrate every area, every darkness in our country. That addictions to drugs would be broken. That your precious light might shine on those who are depressed. many might come to know the joy, the gladness of having their sins forgiven through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, Father, we pray, we pray for those who are mothers in our church. We pray for those who are raising now their children in their home. Father, would you give them, give them great strength Give them great patience. Give them great grace. Lord, help them and remind them, Lord, that their efforts, though, though sometimes they might wonder if their work efforts are doing or working anything, Lord, remind them that their efforts are not in vain. Lord, encourage them, help them to continue to raise their children in the instruction of the Lord that they may continue to point their precious children to Jesus Christ. Give them the grace that they need to do all that you have called them to do in this season of life. And we pray, Father, for the salvation of our precious children. Father, we pray 
We pray for those who have already raised their children. Would you help them in this season of life? Give them wisdom to know how to instill support and help and encourage their children, though they are outside of their home, though they have their own lives to live. Help them, Lord, to be this pillar of support and encouragement for the times that their children need it. And we pray, Father, for those children who have yet to come to know Christ Jesus. Lord, as long as they are still alive and breathing, Lord, it is not too late. May they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Use the good works, the light that their mothers show to draw, to be drawn in, Lord, to the gospel of Christ Jesus. And give these precious mothers the boldness and the winsomeness to continue to proclaim this gospel to their precious kids. Father, we entrust all of these things to you. Father, we, we love you. And we take heart and encouragement knowing that you love us in turn. And it is in this love and in faith, Father, that we also lift up to you and pray to you the prayer that our precious and save, precious Savior Jesus Christ taught us to pray in the scriptures, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Man, if you would, turn with me to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16 this morning. Acts chapter 5, which is 1 through 16. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you have sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, 
How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we desire to come to you this morning and give attention to your word with humility and with reverence. And Lord, I desire to come before you and to preach this word faithfully and with humility. Lord, would you grant our heart's desire to come before you with such a heart and with such an attitude. And we pray that you would graciously bless the good food of your word to our souls. Help us to consider what the word says. Help us to consider its implications and its application. Lord, and continue to build up your church Even in this very moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We value harmony, genuineness, honesty, integrity. These are some of the things that are essential for any thriving society. Not only that, but essential for any healthy relationship. Nobody likes to be lied to. Nobody wants to be surrounded by disingenuous people. We like people of integrity. We want to be able to know that this person is who they say they are. We like to be surrounded by people who are who they are, no matter what context or situations they find themselves in. We want a person of genuine character. We don't want to be around somebody who is fictitious. It's sort of the difference between genuine and imitation leather. They both might look the same, they might even smell the same, or might even feel the same, but there are subtle differences between the two. And one being that one lasts longer than the other. There's a sharp contrast given in the context of our passage this morning. I'm not just talking about verses 1 through 16, but talking about also what came before the sharp contrast here in the passage that highlights the difference between something or someone that is genuine and someone who might be of a fictitious or disingenuous character and the implications. So first, let us get the full picture. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, But a man named Ananias, because with a conjunction, so for those of you who have 
taken Bible study lessons before, you've heard the therefore. When it says therefore, you need to understand or ask what's the therefore, therefore, meaning you need to look back to what happened to understand what's happening in the passage you're considering. But it's a similar rule when you consider the word but. It's pointing us to something that came before. To understand the context, we need to understand what came before. Chapter divisions are helpful because they help us to understand where we are, help us to better memorize Scripture. But sometimes, in this case, it might not be helpful because it might give somebody the impression that we have a new thought or a new idea and a new event when actually this isn't a new event. This is directly connected to what came before. And since we are just coming back to the book of Acts and it's been months since we've been in the book of Acts, I want to take you to what happened just prior to the event in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Acts 4.32 Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." Now, this is a remarkable passage only because of what came before. The church experienced persecution. Peter and John were proclaiming the gospel, and then they were arrested by the religious teachers, and then they were threatened to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and having no other reason to keep them incarcerated. They finally released them. Peter and John then go to the church, tell them what has happened, and they pray for boldness. And one reason they pray for boldness, we have to assume, is because they were afraid. Otherwise, why would you pray for boldness? They prayed for boldness as you continue to read in Acts chapter 4. The Lord answers their prayer. They receive boldness and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts chapter 4 verse 31. And then we see how then the church continues to grow. Acts 4, 32 to 37. And one of the things that we see about the first church in that section is that it was marked by this, this attachment to worldly possessions. Right? They were selling the proceeds. There were, some had land, some had houses. It's not that they sold the very house they were living in and then became impoverished, so they give to others. Then the idea is that these people had extra. They had plenty of goods. They had extra lands. Perhaps they had extra houses. And they sold them and brought the proceeds at the apostles' feet so that they can then distribute the proceeds to those who lacked. They were marked by this, attached, this disattachment to material possessions. Right? And with Christ Jesus as their example. Right? Christ Jesus, who came into the world who left the fellowship of the Trinity, who left the, left the glory and the splendor of heavenly living to come down robed in human flesh and gave up his life to die on the cross for sinners, 
so that they then in turn might have everything in Christ Jesus. Grace, forgiveness of sins, eternal life in Christ Jesus. Their example shows what they value, and they show what they value is they value the church. They value the people of God. 1 John 3.17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Something we learn in the New Testament is that God blesses some people with more than he does with others, and one reason is so that those who have much can provide for those who do not have. The other thing to notice about the first church on this section of passage, or this section in Acts 4, 32-37, is that they were of one heart and soul. There was a harmony about them. Not only this internal harmony to where their internal transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ was also evident in their outward life as well, but there was also a harmony between each individual person in the life of the church. They loved the same things. They were pursuing the same things. They were doing the same things. The church is a kind of orchestra where there are different instruments in the church, but when all of them play their parts together, it produces this glorious and harmonious music that is pleasing to the ears of God. And then in that section, we have the singling out of one particular individual, and that is Barnabas. And here we have the introduction to this character in the Scriptures who also went and sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money to the church, laid it at the apostles' feet. And the selling here, what they're doing here, is not prescriptive. But it's just descriptive. It's telling us what the early church was like. And amongst the many who were very generous with their belongings and were contributing to the needs or to satisfying the needs of the church was this Joseph called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I think it's sort of God's way of commending this individual. And we don't know a whole lot about about Barnabas. We do know some, mostly based on the book of Acts. Barnabas would go on to be the one who introduces the converted Saul to the church elders and the apostles. Barnabas would be set apart along with the apostle Paul by the Spirit to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Barnabas, like the apostle Paul, would surrender his rights to collect anything from the church for gospel ministry and instead decides to work with those, his own hands in order to provide for himself. We see that Barnabas was not only contributing to satisfying the needs of the church, but most importantly, he was contributing to the growing vitality of the church. Most of you know Jeff K.'s famous words, that's not what your country can do for you, but what can you do for your country? It's a similar motto when it comes to the life of the early church. Ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what your church can do, or what you, ask not what you, what the church can do for you, but what you can do for the church. And then we get to Acts chapter 5, verse 1. 
We had a thriving church, full of life, full of vigor, generous, selling the proceeds, contributing to the life of the church. We have Barnabas, son of encouragement, who's also, along with others, selling the field and bringing the belongings and bringing the proceeds and later the apostles' feet to the give to those who need. And then we come to Acts chapter 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and on and on it goes. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, we see that he's not trying to paint a perfect, glorious, sinless picture of the early church. But he's honest. And he makes clear that even in the early church, there was, there was sin that had to be dealt with. We have two contrasting pictures. We have one son of encouragement contributing to the satisfaction of the needs of the church, contributing to the growing vitality and aliveness of the church. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira, members of the church, or maybe perhaps loose members of the church, who aren't contributing. Yes, contributing physically, contributing proceeds, contributing money to the church, but not really contributing to the growing vitality of the church. We have in contrast someone or two people, well, they're married, so the Bible considers them one. But here we have someone who isn't playing according to the rules, someone who is playing off-key, a disruptor of the harmony of the church. Someone who is, or a couple who is living out a kind of cheap imitation of godliness. It takes us to the second point, a cheap imitation. So they sell a piece of property, property that belongs to them. And to put it, make it simply and put it in American dollars, let's say that they sold a piece of land for $10,000 and they kept half of it and they brought the other half to the church later at the apostles' feet. And they said, we sold a piece of land for $5,000 and we're giving the whole thing to the church. And others who might have heard of it probably applauded them, rejoiced, and were glad in it. Praise God for your generosity, brother and sister. Thank you for contributing to the needs of the saints. But as we see, that wasn't actually the case. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? In other words, Ananias, nobody forced you to do this. That's your land. You're Welcome to do with it as you please. If you wanted to sell it, you can go ahead and sell it. If you wanted to keep back all the proceeds, you have the right to do that. That's not a sin to do that. Nobody forced you to do anything with your land, and yet here you are coming to us, lying about something that you actually didn't do. Or at least you are giving us a half-truth here. 
You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. The Lord took his life. And one question we immediately might have is, is this too harsh? I mean, a lie is a lie. I mean, a lie is never a good thing. A lie is a bad thing. But is it too harsh? I mean, should Ananias have his life extinguished from him because he lied? This is, I would put this, this situation, I would put this, this it's kind of its own category. There's sort of, there are sort of spectacular sins in the scriptures, spectacular sins because they bring about a spectacular judgment. And I would put this in that kind of category. Another example in the scriptures that I think fits this category comes in 2 Samuel 6.5, familiar, I'm sure, to many of you. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because the ark of God. Another occasion when one might Think, too harsh of a punishment, God. Too harsh of a punishment. He's just trying to catch the ark before it stumbled and hit to the ground. Wait, why should he have his life taken out from him? And I'm reminded of something that R.C. Sproul had once said, commenting on this very passage. I don't remember exactly how he said it, but he said something along the lines of this, that Oza presumed that his hands were cleaner than the dirt on the ground. In other words, Uzzah was a sinner. The ground isn't a sinner. The ground cannot sin against God. In that sense, the ground is cleaner than the hands of Uzzah. Right? How dare you touch that which is holy? And this belongs in the same category as Ananias and Sapphira and their sin against the Lord and the spectacular judgment that came about because of their sin. Now we should be incredibly thankful for God's patience that he does not execute such a swift judgment on man today. And the only reason is not because God is accepting of man's sin, but God is giving man the chance and the time to repent of their sin. Another, another event that belongs in that spectacular sin, spectacular judgment category is the sin of Nadab and Abihu. Right, some of you might remember that story in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. 
not the same sin, but receives a similar judgment to that of Ananias and Sapphira and that of Uzzah. And in that situation, and there in Leviticus, we have sort of the beginnings of worship. After God had given the people of God the, the commandments, had consecrated Aaron and his sons to be the priest, to minister before the Lord on behalf of the people, we're seeing the beginnings of worship in the life of Israel. And it's a strange fire that is brought before the Lord that God has not commanded and God consumes them. And here we have in the early church, as a first, as a church begins to be established in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have an occasion of sin that is met with a swift judgment. So after Ananias, then after an interval of about three hours, comes his wife, not knowing what had happened. Here comes Sapphira. This past week, I, I came across the comments of a, an individual in a commentary how that Peter perhaps was sort of wet behind the ears here as a, as a pastor, as like pastoral insight or pastoral sensitivity in confronting Sapphira in the way that he did. And I think that's just, I think that's just baloney. Yes, it is a pastoral situation. But I think Peter, at this point, knew what was going on. And it's not that he intended for, for, for Ananias to die. It's not like he brought this rebuke thinking that Ananias was going to die. Right? There's no indication of that here. He was probably just as surprised as anybody else who was sitting there that Ananias died on the spot. He was probably very cautious from then on about confronting anybody in their sin, thinking like, oh, I hope he doesn't die if I confront them in their sin. But here is Sapphira. Peter already knows, at this point, he's probably understood that God means to do something about the sin. And he gives her a chance to rectify the situation. He gives her a chance to come clean. He gives her a chance to be genuine to be transparent, to be honest. And it all, the whole thing plays out like a scene in a movie. right? At this point, we would probably be at the edge of our seats. We had just seen what happened to Ananias, and now Sapphira comes in, had no idea what had happened to her husband, and Peter addresses the question to Sapphira, and they're all waiting. And the pastor seems to indicate that there are also men standing at the ready, And perhaps they were praying. Perhaps they were hoping and praying that Sapphira would come clean. But they were already there at the ready. And tragically, we see that she wasn't honest, but continues to live out the lie. Following in the path of her husband, and then she too is met with a similar fate. This is a concern of appearance. In Joshua 7.10, another occasion that belongs to that category of spectacular sins and judgment, this was the sin of Achan. Joshua 7.10, the Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why have you fallen on your face? 
Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. And it continues. Achan was living out a lie. They were devoted things, things that were to be devoted to destruction. The Lord had commanded, you are not to take any of these possessions of the pagans. They are to be devoted to destruction. But Achan fell into the, the temptation, was allured by these worldly attachments, was given in to the lust of his eyes, and he took these things that were to, bo- to be devoted to destruction, took them for himself, hid them underneath his tent. And the Lord knew. And the Lord took his life. He gave this appearance of godliness, but it was disingenuous. The whole event is very spiritual in nature. And I'm not just saying because of the way that Ananias and Sapphira died, but because of what Peter says. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. Then to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? There's a very spiritual nature to this lie and this living out of this lie. And the passage makes clear this is, this is the work of the devil. This is the work of Satan. Satan has entered the heart of Ananias to lie, but then who is responsible here? Is it Ananias or is it, is it the devil? But Ananias is the one who suffered and died, which tells us that Ananias is still held responsible. Luke 22 Verse 3 to 6, speaking about Judas. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the member of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. So we see here, Satan was the one who entered into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, but in the gospel accounts we also see that Judas was stealing from Jesus and the other disciples, taking out of the money box that belonged to them. So in other words, Luke, uh, Judas was already hardening his own heart. He was already extending an invitation to the devil to come and enter my heart. The actions of Ananias and Sapphira were Luciferian in nature. Luciferian because Lucifer, Satan himself, is, Jesus says, the father of lies. He's been a liar since the very beginning. In Acts chapter 4, we saw, we see there the attacks of the church, external attacks persecution coming from without. The devil is always after the church. It's always intending to persecute the church. It's always intending to separate the church. And now in Acts chapter 5, we see an internal attack of the church. 
This was an attempt to disrupt the unity of the church. Jesus says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is an attempt to leaven the entire church with a bit of sin. This was an attempt to lie to God. Peter, in effect, is saying to lie to the church and to lie to the apostles is the same as lying to God because God is with his church. Not only is one lying to the Lord, but lying is injurious to the whole church. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Another question one might ask is, why did they do this? Even Peter asked this question himself. Why? Why would you lie? You didn't have to lie. Right? You could have just said you sold the land for $10,000 and you gave only half of it to the church. That would have been one fine and good. But why did you have to lie in this way? Because they wanted recognition. When you think of the early church and what they were doing, you think of Barnabas, seems to have stood out amongst the rest because of his genuine godliness. They wanted the recognition. They wanted to give the appearance of generosity while at the same time hiding their greed. Their desire to appear godly was greater than their desire to be godly. They wanted the appearance of godliness without the character of godliness. They thought that they could make themselves fit for heavenly living when it is only God who makes men fit for heavenly living. This is what I would call a Luciferian godliness. A Luciferian godliness is an inauthentic godliness. It is like the imitation of genuine leather. It isn't real. It may look the same, but it isn't. This is the same as a false convert, which the scriptures have a category for. Somebody who is in the church, who is doing the right things, seems to be producing fruit, but at some point they fall away. Just read 1 John. 1 John has a category for that. Someone who genuinely believes that they are a believer, but over time, at some point, they fall away. For some, it's because of persecution. For some, the scripture says, because of the lust of the world, they end up falling away, showing that they were never truly with the church. But this is a different case. We're not talking about someone who is actually living as a Christian. We're talking here about someone who is intentionally lying. This was an intentional lie. This was someone or a couple who was intentionally engaging in sin and living out in that sin and giving at the same time this appearance of godliness to the rest of the church trying to catch everyone in a deception. It is a Luciferian kind of godliness. It is half-hearted worship, the kind of worship that the Lord is not content with. We'll give half of the proceeds to the church. We'll keep half for the the rest for ourselves, and we'll let everybody believe that we gave the whole thing to the church. It is is a half-hearted worship that gives this appearance of wholehearted worship. And the Lord is not content with half-hearted worship. And Ananias and Sapphira are like, it's like the woman who settled to only have half a baby. The story of Solomon. Right? Some of you remember the story and the women are disputing with one another because one's baby died. 
and then in the sleep, the other one takes the other baby from the mother and says, no, this is my baby. No, this is, no, you took my baby. Yours died. This is my baby. So they go to King Solomon to settle the dispute. I mean, I can imagine what it's been like to have been sitting there, maybe perhaps as one of the officials in that room, hearing the dispute. Solomon, king, would you please settle the dispute? Help us. Would you provide a solution? And King Solomon is there, and he's thinking, he's thinking. He's like, got it. Cut the baby in half. You each get half. That resolves the issue. Right, people would have been like, what? That's grotesque, King Solomon. But as we know, it was wise. Because the one who was wholeheartedly devoted to the child says, no, fine, give her to the, to the other one. The one who was half-heartedly devoted said, yes, let's do that. Showing who the true mother was. Luciferian godliness is a half-hearted devotion that only pleases the devil. And it's the kind that the Lord will not settle for. The devil is more than happy to have men give half their hearts if the other half is given to the world. He is pleased to have a divided man, one half to God, one half to the world. If he cannot have the whole man, he is willing to cut them in half. But Jesus will not have just half the man or half the woman. He wants the entire person, the entire mind, the entire heart. Jesus did not come into the world and say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself part-time, take up his cross half-time, and come follow me. Jesus did not say that. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross, and come follow me. He's talking about wholehearted, full-time devotion. We might have an excuse to give ourselves to Jesus only halfway if Jesus came into the world and only gave half his life. But Jesus did not come into the world to give half his life, only to bring about only half a salvation. But Jesus gave his entire life so that we might in turn give our lives wholly unto him. passage shows us that the Lord values authentic, wholehearted godliness, but rejects its imitation, which we see in Ananias and Sapphira. Which takes us to third and lastly, the Lord values authentic godliness. And there are several signs that we see that showcase to us that God values such authentic godliness. We see in the rest of the passage that God continued to work out many signs and wonders through the hands of the apostles, performing miracles, healing those who are sick, thereby God showing that he is with his church, showing that he is with his apostles, showing that this message comes from the Lord and not man. Right, and we don't, we don't see these things right, with regularity today in the life of the church, at least in part because we don't need it. The early church needed it because this was the first of its kind. Nothing else had ever entered the scene of the world like this. And so God was attesting to the reality that he was with his church and that this is from him and that this message is authentic. 
And not only that, verse 13, none of the rest there joined them, those who were in the church, gathered together in Solomon's portico, but the people held them in high esteem. It's hard to discern what this means, but I think what it means is that there were some who still stood outside of the church. They weren't ready to commit to the church. They weren't ready to give their life to Jesus Christ. But what had happened, they had heard, and now they stand in a kind of reverence for the Lord. Which is good. Praise God for that. It's better to be an unbeliever who has a reverence for God than an unbeliever who does not have a reverence for God. One is closer to salvation to the other than the other. What we see is that the church's authenticity is protected, and as a result, the church continues to thrive and the church continues to grow. The Lord loves and blesses authentic godliness. He blesses it in the life of each individual believer, and he blesses it in the life of the church. It's one of the marks of a, li- of a living and thriving church. This oneness, this harmony is maintained. The event of Ananias and Sapphira, their sin function as sort of like a blockage in an artery that prevented blood flow. But now that it's been dealt with, the blood continues to flow throughout the body of the church and it continues to thrive and grow and mature. So then as we consider this passage and its implications, we should carefully consider our own hearts. Should we be afraid of this Luciferian godliness in our own lives? In some sense, yes, but only if you fail to repent. That if you are in sin, if you are intentionally engaging in sin, and there is no practice of confession of your sins before the Lord, and there is no intent to repent of your sins, well, at the same time, You might be leading others to believe that you are walking in authentic godliness. The Lord is calling you through this passage to repent of your sins. To go before the Lord and confess your sins before the Lord. Go to Him. The promise of the Scriptures is that Jesus will never, ever, ever cast away anyone who comes to him in genuine confession of sins, repentance, and sorrow for their sins. He welcomes all sinners. In another sense, no, we should not be afraid of this Luciferian godliness if you have a practice of confessing your sins and repenting of your sins. But be that as it may, We should still consider our own hearts. Is there any half-heartedness in our devotion to the Lord? Would we, are we today willing to give a blank piece of paper to the Lord and say, God, here is paper, here is the pen, write what you would will for my life. What would prevent you from doing that? Is there any attachment to the world? Is there any sin that's preventing you from being wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord in worship and giving your life? Is there any fear? Is there any other attachments? 
Is there any idols in our hearts that prevents us from being wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord and giving our entire selves to following Christ Jesus? Let us consider our own hearts. Christ Jesus gave his entire life for you. And in turn, he asked that you would give your entire life to him. For his glory, for his purposes, to walking in his ways. And that is the kind of life that the Lord blesses. And that is the kind of church that the Lord blesses. The church that is wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord and does not give an appearance of godliness, but is authentically godly because they have received the gospel of Jesus Christ and strive by the grace of the Spirit and with all their might to live out the gospel in every situation, in every occasion, in and outside of the church. So let us be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do not want to be part-timers. When we consider the life of Christ Jesus, we see in the Gospels that Jesus was not only wholeheartedly devoted to the plan and will of God, but he was wholeheartedly devoted to sinners, devoted to the people that he came to save. Lord, help us by your Spirit to follow the example of Jesus. Lord, we do not want to give you only half our hearts. We want to give you our entire heart, our entire life, to living it for your glory. Lord, there are some days that are harder than others. There are some days when we are wholeheartedly devoted, we are zealous. God, pray, we praise you for such days. We pray for more of those days. But not every day is like that. There are some days where temptations are real and they are hard and they are strong and there are things that come into our lives, things that we cannot help. There are situations that we have no control over that make us only half-hearted in our worship of you. Lord, help us to resist the devil Help us to resist our flesh in those trying days or in those trying hours or in those trying seasons. Give us the grace and the strength to still be wholeheartedly devoted to you. We do not want to be fictitious. We want to be genuine in the godliness that you have given to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be blessed. 
we want to have more life infused in us, this life of Christ infused in us. So help us to grow in our godliness. Help us to be wholeheartedly devoted to you in our workplace, in the life of the church, in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting, in everything that we do. Help us to be wholeheartedly devoted to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's, uh, let's sing one more song uh, together uh, in response to today's message. It's, it's a classic for us. It's a heart of worship. Amen.
Father, we thank you. I thank you, Father, for the church. I'm grateful, Father, just for for all the saints. For all the saints, Lord, that you have uh, brought together here at Seacoast. The work that you are doing in each and every one of us, Lord. I'm thankful, Father, for the lives uh, that we've all been able to uh, be a part of um, and become family more than just friends. Thankful, Father, that we are grounded in Christ Jesus in the midst of our relationships and and it's it's a beautiful thing, Lord, where we can come together and and worship you, Lord. In song and in your word, in all that we do, for it is all worship. And so as we just sang, God, give us a heart of worship. Give your church a heart of worship. God, may we value each other as we heard today. For you, God, you've you've set us apart to be a witness to the world. So, God, I I pray our hearts uh, may be sincere as we serve one another, as we serve you, Father. God, keep us keep us from any from any greed or lying tongue. But instead, Lord, produce in us a heart of humility and of true worship. As we, as we seek, God, to be a church after your own heart, we also value authentic godliness, as we heard today. Yes, Lord, may we devote our lives wholeheartedly, God, for the honor and glory of your name. Jesus. You're worthy of our praise, God. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, God bless you. You are dismissed. Amen.